0: The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivalled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12 week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk/slash/summer. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by the eminent classicist Mary Beard, whose new book is Emperor of Rome. Now, welcome Mary. By the title, one might think this was a kind of Seller and Yateman, Suetonius-type Kings and Things history, but it's not. What are you trying to do with this book? Yeah,
1: you might think that... Beard had gone back on her you know well-known propensity for looking at the underclass and had decided to invest instead in um, posh white men. Right? Well, in part that's true. But it's I think it's different from what you might think for two reasons, honestly. One is that it's not a biography of any emperor or emperors. What the book is trying to say is, look, you know, there's some great biographies out there if you want, but probably, in my view, the best way of understanding what's going on in the Roman Empire at the top is not to think about the wickedness of Domitian or the sensible policies of Vespasian or whatever. It's to say, look, emperors are more like each other than they are different. The stories of virtue and vice are largely concocted after they died. And we get a lot further in saying, look, what did emperors do? What was the job? Because they all did the same job. They lived in the same place. They had the same kind of staff. So can we see them as a group? And actually, that's sort of what one emperor, Marcus Aurelius, suggested when he said... He looked back over his predecessors and said, do you know, same play, different cast. Well, I suppose my motto is that. So in one way, I'm thinking about the emperor. So it's, you don't have to worry, and I think this is really important because it can be very off-putting to people. You don't have to worry if you don't, can't tell Marcus Aurelius from Antoninus Pius. You, know, you have to remember, most Romans probably couldn't either. And we're
0: looking at emperors as a category. So that's one thing. Yeah, I think you are going to have a helpful timeline in the, in the, the end. <laughs>
1: there is a helpful timeline and there is a list of them at the beginning. But I think it's, you know, most Romans could give you the details of the Emperor Galba no more accurately than I could give you the details of Edward III, Third, Right. You know, I know quite a lot, in a way, about medieval kingship, but I could not even give you the dates of the reign of Edward III. Well, that's and,
0: reassuring for uh, us civilians.
1: It's, I think
0: it's reassuring
1: for everybody. And, and one of the things I illustrate in the book is it's a lovely little papyrus from Roman Egypt, very neat handwriting, clearly educated guy, I imagine it's a man. And he's trying to make himself a list of Roman emperors. And he gets them wrong you know so I think we've got to sort of put out of our mind or I'm encouraging people to put out of their minds the idea that the key to the Roman Empire is being able to name all the buggers you know actually um you can be you can you can take a kind of a, a more overview than that so that's one reason why it's different. But the other reason why it's different and this really is kind of me reverting to type I guess is I think Bizarrely, perhaps, the emperor at the very top of the Roman tree proves to be a really interesting magnifying lens onto the world of the ordinary, the exploited, the slaves, etc. There's kind of two reasons for that. One is that one of the kind of fundamental sort of tenets of what it was to be a Roman emperor was to be accessible to people's problems you know you were the court of last resort you were the person to whom people
0: could come and bring their begging letters that's one of the very surprising things that to you know you have these emperors there's a lovely story i can't remember which emperor it was who gets kind of collared by you know random old oik and yeah
1: uh, it's Hadrian, Had, it's, it's Hadrian, you know, but a peasant lady comes up to him and says, excuse me, emperor, you know, and he says, terribly, sorry, no time. And she says, if you haven't got time to, for me, you haven't got time to be emperor. <laughs> now, this is probably a very rosy view of the accessibility of the Roman emperor, but still in part it's true. So it's through the kind of imperial documentation whether it's on papyrus or in law codes or inscribed on stone that you actually see more real problems of real ordinary people in the roman empire than you do anywhere else you know from that's from kind of augustus you know first proper emperor he had to judge this extraordinary case in the town of Knidos in Turkey, where there'd been kind of two warring families, and one lot was bashing up the house of the other lot. We don't know what what lay behind it, and at one point the. Master and mistress of one house, so of the house under attack, told a slave to empty the contents of a chamber pot onto the head of the people who were being rowdy underneath, which indeed the slave did, but he also dropped the pot and it <laughs> killed one of the assailants. Right. Now, it's a rough uh, justice. The, uh, uh, the local authorities. Were minded to make this a case of murder, and to prosecute the slave's owners for murder. Somehow it ends up in Augustus's intra, and we have his decision. He explains what happened, and he says, "I think it's legitimate self-defense." Now, without that kind of bit of imperial documentation, we would never have known about this kind of real-life incident in a in a kind of. Quite sort of prestige town, but still pretty small town, the other side of the Roman Empire. So you you see those kind of problems and difficulties through the emperor's eyes. Another great case that comes to Trajan, which is a, a man has decided that he's going to make money by prostituting his wife, and the one of his clients fails to come up with the cash, and he's trying to get the cash. And the guy won't pay, so he goes to the emperor. And wise old Trajan says, you know, think again, mate, sorry, I'm not, you know, if you prostitute your wife, um, you've only got yourself to blame. Ah, oh, that's a kind of enlightened
0: intervention. <laughs>
1: it is. Now, get, get, get. Let me just say oh, yeah. one more thing, though, because the, then we can kind of move on. And um, the other thing is, of course, you see loads and loads about the people who did the emperor's work. So we learn about the slaves who wrote the letters on the emperor's behalf, the slaves who were the masses of the emperor's wives, the slaves who uh, carried the handbags, served at dinner. So m- my view of the palace is not just emperor and his mates, it's going right down to the the chief food taster at the, upstairs, towards the bottom. Upstairs downstairs kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's upstairs downstairs.
0: Now, to, to, Give it, before we go on to some of the details of the Emperor's Lives, to give it a, the frame. As you describe in your sort of opening pages, the shift between republic and empire was a shift between a sort of qualified form of democracy and quite a qualified autocracy. Can you explain yeah. what those qualifications are and how the shift came yeah. about? Well, the the old republic,
1: and um, they would have... They'd have died if someone said it's a democracy. They thought democracy was wicked, Um, or most Romans thought democracy was wicked. But it was a system of power-sharing and popular voting. The voting was officially rigged in favour of the rich. There are all kinds of things that we wouldn't recognise as democratic, but it was um, a... A fairly traditional, in some ways, method of governing a small city state with annually elected officials who, um, in a sense, govern the state with an advisory group, the Senate, for one year only, Um, no repetition of office, office holding, always shared. So I think, in deference to the Romans, I would say, I'm trying... Only to say it's a sort of democracy, and I think they would have said it's a power-sharing, power-sharing governmental system. Nobody holds power for very long, and they never hold power alone. Now it's under that system that Rome gets its empire, and the reasons for it getting its empire, you know, is actually probably <laughs> more, go into. <laughs> more complicated than the reason why they lost it. Right? But in a way, they become victims of their own success and they they get a by a combination of kind of good luck perhaps militarism competitiveness they get this vast land-based empire which proves very hard to govern by this old-fashioned power sharing arrangement of nobody ever holding power for long and never alone it's system of annual office holding. You know, by the time you get to the middle of the first century BC, it would take you three months at least. To get
0: to be, your new post. Yeah, and, yeah, so, yeah.
1: No, and they, have, they mitigate that in all kinds of ways, but essentially what they're trying to do is run a large land-based empire on the mechanisms of a tiny city-state. And there are a whole series in the run-up to Julius Caesar of guys who sort of get one man rule for a little while it never it never quite takes off but you can you know the direction of travel is very much towards more power for longer in the hands of one person and Julius Caesar becomes the acme of that and he's absolutely on the cusp between sort of democracy and sort of autocracy he's killed in 44 BC by a load of not so heroic individuals. I think we've been a bit kind of influenced by Shakespeare to, you know, we, you know, Brutus, you know, Shakespeare's hero, is a nasty piece of work, I think. But he's killed by this group of conspirators in the name of liberty. Now, bizarrely, partly because they were terribly ill-organised, you know, they killed him fine. It's You know, assassinations are always much easier than knowing what to do next. And they didn't know what to do next, really. Hadn't got a forward plan. And pretty soon, it's clear that although Caesar was killed in the name of liberty, the form of government that's going to replace him is going to be autocracy of some sort. And even Brutus, you know, Shakespeare's hero, very next year after after Caesar's assassination is putting out coins with his own head on them, which Caesar had done, the first Roman, living Roman to do. Absolute clear sign of, of So power. So is
0: there a sort of sense that, because it's it again surprising you'd think if they've been a republic for so long, that there really aren't, as you describe it, people speaking up in Caesar or Octavian's reign for, for going back to the old ways. Well,
1: there is for a bit, and you've got a, a you've got a long period, more than a decade actually, after the death of Caesar, of civil war, in which there would be some people at that point who you know think that the old ways are recoverable probably. But the general tendency is these are civil wars fighting out who's going to be the king or emperor. I didn't like the word king, but emperor, leading citizen, and you know the the last man standing is Caesar's great nephew and adopted son Octavian, who finally finishes off Antony and Cleopatra, and he's then got a choice of what to do but it's i don't think it's much of a choice you know i think he's going to step in some way into caesar's shoes but at the same time he wants to avoid assassination and he establishes a the system of government which basically lasts in rome for many centuries in its basic form How he sat down and thought this out, how far it's a kind of set of improvisations, how far it's, um, you know, there's a kind of master plan. We just don't know. Later Romans assumed there was a master plan. But it may have been much more kind of hand-to-mouth sort of decision-making. But what he does is he, his his classic move is he nationalises the army. So it becomes, in a way, a military dictatorship, though that's rather kind of fudged.
0: But because uh, we did have some private armies before, didn't we, in the Crassus and era?
1: One of the problems was, you know, and why you get these civil wars, and one of the problems about control in the in the quasi democracy is that. Armies are sort of, all of them are sort of private armies. They might be state funded, but they're loyal only to their own general, honestly, who gets the money. And Augustus cuts through that, an enormous expense, and he says, Everybody is loyal to me. And he starts kind of absolutely unheard of things at that point. It must have been really revolutionary that the soldiers were enrolled for a fixed term and they got a pension. Right? Now, it was colossally expensive to do that. took half, half the income of the Roman Empire to do that. And you know they had the same, same pension problems that we have. You know, <laughs> Pretty soon, the pension age is being a little bit deferred you know, in the hope that they can do it a bit more cheaply and some of them will have died in the interim. But that is the classic move. And what he does brilliantly is he somehow bolts his autocracy onto some of the main features of the previous democracy. Now, so all those kind of office holdings that people had competed for, they continue. You know, there, there are still consuls, there's still a senate. There are differences in that effectively the emperor comes to choose who those people are. But he is constructing an autocratic model using some of the building blocks of the democracy. Now, people used to say, blindly, it's a completely hypocritical cover up. You know, Didn't the Romans realise that it wasn't a democracy any longer? Well, of course they did, actually. But what he's doing is he's using the traditional rhetoric of Roman politics to provide his administrators, to keep the honour going. He, in many ways, ups the prestige of institutions like the Senate and the senators. He gives them you know, better special footwear and
0: special seats. And yes, nice seats at the Coliseum. Nice, nice seats at the Coliseum. Well, the Coliseum hadn't
1: been built then. but And, and so you've got this, what turns out to be, a kind of brilliantly resilient system. And what's odd about the Roman Empire is that although individual emperors are always being challenged, there's very little trace of the system being
0: challenged. And that system also part of that resilience which I to expand on, you talk about, as you say, it's a very unstable position as an emperor. You're always frightened of being knocked off or usurped or whatever it is. But in order to kind of produce, if I understand you rightly, kind of slightly to keep the traditional aristocracy who would have been a threat in their place, you're seeing much more social mobility and slaves becoming freedmen and getting senior roles in the administration. Is that kind of by design or is it just drawing on a different talent pool?
1: I think that Augustus, insofar as it's his brainchild in some form, he's got a problem. I mean, you can bolt on your autocratic regime to the old-fashioned system if you say, OK, yeah, you you can go and be governor of Asia, right, governor of Africa. Um, you, as a traditional senator, will take the same jobs. You know, you will now much more likely to be appointed directly by the emperor, but... There are a whole series of things which fit into the average senator's view of what they would do. What doesn't fit in is being a secretary. And if you're going to run the Roman Empire, uh, we're a broadly centralised system. I mean, there's many, many fewer boots on the grounds than most empires have. But you need a different form of of workforce, and you try telling your average Roman senator that they're going to take your dictation. Um, you know, the idea of the private secretary is not the private secretary is not an honorific position in ancient Rome. Doesn't have
0: many tax collecting powers either, right? No.
1: So you, what happens is that Augustus, following in the tradition in some ways, of big Republican families from the earlier period who would have had large-scale slave workforces in their own private house, doing everything from taking the dictation to doing the cookery, what develops is a a kind of separate route uh, into administration, which includes some eventually extremely powerful Ex slaves, the slave, they probably go into this as a enslaved, but as was very common in Rome, slaves in at least in urban contexts got freed. Often it was it was the normal expectation um, for an urban slave to get freed, and you find it then that the palace administration outside, you know, the kind of old fashioned senatorial stuff, is being. Populated by a completely different group of people. And that does present one of the, the kind of the standoffs in the empire because the question always was from the senators what kind of power are slaves having? Senators were in a double bind. They don't want to do the dictation, they don't want to be the emperor's accountant, yet they also know that the people who in some ways have what they perceive as the real power, people who are actually sitting down and going through the accounts with Augustus, even, as they would say, the, the slave barber who's chatting to the emperor for 20 minutes in the morning and whispering in his ear about some of his problems, that you get a the power of proximity. And it is one of the fault lines at least the cultural fault lines in the system. So historians like Tacitus are very conscious. Second century CE, Nero, he's writing, looking back to the first century, you know, Nero sends uh, a slave or an ex-slave to kind of try and sort things out in Britain. And the barbarians, says Tacitus, they still know that freedom counts, right? We have lost freedom because who's really running us well it's these slaves
0: and ex-slaves That's great. now a note on the kind of sources you've got because most of us um, you know the average civilians apprehension of the Roman Emperor is or the series of emperors is through kind of Suetonius and these kind of very gaudy very you know violent and depraved and these accounts which are obviously you know often written years later how how possible is it to get to the truth of what actually happened, and or, or how can we read that sort of? Mm. I mean, you start with Elagabalus. 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 We don't know how he said it himself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I
1: mean, um, um, I think that's always been, you know, central to Roman imperial history. What do you do with the extravagant anecdotes, and the standard? M- kind of way of approaching them has always been to kind of say well are they true or not right and can we find out whether they're true now one of the things I try to do is to say look we can't you know we have to kind of get above can I know if Elagabalus really did smother his guests with rose petals no we can't know and I, I think that the way forward with those anecdotes is not to chuck them out because you can't know if they're true. It's to say, whether they're true or not, some might be, many not, one thing they're certainly telling us is what people want to say about emperors. You know, just as... If we were to analyse the celebrity gossip or the royal gossip of the 21st century, many items of which are not true, you know, if you had to read, make a list of what Harry and Meghan are supposed to have got up to, you'd, you know, the, the truth filter would be quite hard to apply. But one of the things we know is that they tell us about us and they tell us about how we project all kinds of. Fantasies and problems, and how we see these characters, and so part of what I do is to say, look, don't get hung up about whether this is true. Think what that anecdote is telling you, right? And you know, I think the anecdote of Elagabalus and the rose petals is, you know, is a good case in point. I mean, a story is that um, this teenage, this third-century teenage emperor invites. You know, people to dinner and the end of the evening he does what other Roman emperors have done before which is he he showers rose petals on the assembled party but Elagabalus does it with in such profusion that the guests smother and suffocate and die now I mean one way of talking about that is uh, you've got a teenager on the throne you know it's a bit of capricious teenage behavior and that might in part be the case. But I think there's another point in it, which is to say, how do you know when the emperor's being kind? You know, is the emperor's kindness and generosity actually dangerous? You know? Can the emperor kill by kindness? Well, yes. So I think it's opening up a different set of debates about how. Romans, some Romans, chose to think about what imperial power was.
0: There's another another dinner party you mentioned, which has the same kind of creepy ambivalence, which I think is Domitian, isn't it? Mm. Um, I'd love it. (laughs) Dinner's obviously an important theme in (laughs) this book.
1: (laughs) And dinner was an important theme in the Roman Empire. If you wanted to kind of think, you think the emperor, where do you see him? Well, in part, you see him at dinner. And, you know, Domitian has a, a, a great story told by him. It's very simple. He invites a load of posh Romans to dinner. When they go into the dining room, they discover it's all black. And they discover that the food is served in black dishes. It's food that is usually prepared for funerals. And next to every couch is a silver slab with the occupant's name it except that it's shaped like a tombstone right? and Domitian spends a whole evening talking about death nothing else and these guys you know they're absolutely petrified um, and they think you know, last hour here has come right? but at the end Domitian just says goodbye and, um, and they go and they think breathe a sigh of relief they get home and then there's a knock at the door and they think right This must be it. And when they go out, however, they don't find a hit squad. They find a little group of palace porters who have brought all the things they ate off and the silver tombstone to them as presents from the emperor. Now, in many ways, it is the same sort of story as... Elagabalus and the rose petals, though it has a happy ending rather than a sad ending, because it's, it's saying, how do you terrorise people? You know, what counts as terror? Terror doesn't have to be just a knife, a dagger, a sword, an instruction to kill yourself. That terror can be mediated through quirky generosity, now, I don't, we don't have Domitian's side of the story, and this was written up quite a lot later. And, you know, I sometimes think, well, Domitian just thought he was doing a rather clever fancy dress party, really. <laughs> you know, a bit, you know, a weird taste. But, um, you know, and there's also stories of other Romans who use dinner as an opportunity to think about death. Mm-hmm. Again, right. it's sort
0: of fruitful to think about. But we do have, in at least one case, we do have a sort of emperor's side of the story, In Marcus Aurelius, and I'm actually you're surprisingly down on his Meditations as as being a collection of hallmark banalities.
1: I am going to get millions of tweets and emails from the Marcus Aurelius fan club, which is large, which is very, very large. I have to say, I've put my toe in the water here before, and you know, it's not you know Twitter outrage; is quite high in this level. What I think is interesting about Marcus Aurelius is he has, for reasons I don't understand, his what we call meditations. We don't know what he called it himself. We don't know what they were. Have become a kind of modern bestseller, kind of self-help, sub-stoical bestseller, you know, to be found on the bedside table of President Clinton and a lot of other people. I mean, I think that most people who buy them don't probably don't read them with much attention. Because I think if they did, they would not have quite the the sense of Marcus Aurelius having the answer to the world's problems. They tend to think, you know, things like you know, when you get up in the morning, make sure you think what you'll do in the day. You know, (laughs) I'm inventing that one to be fair, but it's that's the kind of you know, all written in nice ancient Greek, and it kind of by a Roman emperor, it kind of gets a cachet that perhaps it doesn't deserve. I think, however that even if I am down on the meditations, Marcus Aurelius is an interesting emperor who's behind his facade we do get a glimpse, but much more through... Other things he wrote which don't have anything like the best selling pulling power of the meditations. And I'm thinking particularly about the letters between himself and his tutor when he was a young man his tutor, a North African um, leading rhetorician academic called Fronto, Marcus Cornelius Fronto. And There has been an amazing accident of survival um, that these letters have come down to us. They were actually on a manuscript which was reused in the 7th century um, by some monks who wanted to put a church council onto some spare papyrus or spare parchment. They didn't have it. So they washed off Marcus Aurelius and Fronto's letters and put the Council of Chalcedon onto it instead. But an eagle-eyed guy in 1815 saw that there was something underneath um, and recovered the letters between Marcus Aurelius and Fronto. And there you have a completely different version of an emperor. He's not quite emperor yet. He's still still sort of the, the designated successor. And he's talking in extraordinarily effusive terms, which some people have thought were clearly homoerotic terms to Fronto, his tutor, you know. Oh, my honey, I love you so much. Um, you know, and the Latin does say that. Um, but you also learn about... The kind of lessons he did, and he goes on and on at enormous length about his bodily ailments. I got up this morning and my neck did feel a little better, but the pain in my foot was a lot worse, and the stomach upset that I'd had the previous night was still a little there. I, I have been eating, but not. And, and you think, you know, this need-to-know basis, you <laughs> kind of thing. Um but you see. You do see a bit behind the mask. Uh, it's what they are writing t- to each other and what they're doing. You know, he's going out and staying with his adopted father, Antoninus Pius, and they're doing a bit of hunting. And Marcus Aurelius is pretty hopeless at hunting. You know, and then he says things like, and I sat down after lunch, I sat down with mummy. You know, literally it says mummy, matercular, not mater. Oh, awesome. uh, you know, we had a chat. And there you start to see what I think is not this guy who's sounding off with some stoic cliches, though I fully accept that other people think that the meditations are worth more than that. But you see, you see, a young man who's a bit naive, and old you see how ordinary this, this you know, eighteen to twenty-one year old is. You know, behind the mask of the emperor, behind the performance, this. Just a kind of 21-year-old who's still liking to sit down with mummy. <laughs> That's
0: a rare and welcome glimpse. You mentioned hunting. I mean, I, I mean we're probably running a bit out of time, but I, everybody loves a good gladiate. And you do have a fascinating chapter on the on what the Colosseum and the gladiatorial contest there meant and the role the emperor had in them. What What was their place in the kind of spectacular self-presentation of of the Emperor.
1: Right. Well, not as much as the races, it has to be said. I mean, the Colosseum has survived in glorious material form um, and it takes all our attention. Um, The Colosseum would have held about 50,000 people. Um, Only five minutes' walk away is the Circus Maximus where the races were a total desert and wreck, but it would have held... Something like two hundred and fifty thousand people, and that's where we should be looking. But no, we look at the Colosseum, and I do too. Um, in 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 some way, the Colosseum, yeah, it is. You know, of, you know, nobody can get away from the fact that this is human slaughter. In some way, as a display, as a display, perhaps as pleasure. I think where we go wrong though when we think about gladiators and wild beast hunts et cetera etc not you know, I'm not saying it's bloodless in any way. Where we go wrong is we kind of we we have the 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 Russell Crow Joaquin phoenix um gladiator movie image of the baying crowd you know um, you know bloodthirsty you know lusting for death etc etc. And it isn't like that. I mean, uh, one of my colleagues in Cambridge said, look, probably we ought to think about the Colosseum, the gladiatorial shows, more like the opera than like a kind of blood fest. And why that? Well, everybody who goes to the Colosseum has to go in a toga. Now, we think that's what the Romans wore. No, they don't wear togas any more often than we wear dinner jackets probably you know so we're already by saying togas only in the coliseum we're already in covent garden and we're in our dinner jackets okay <laughs> and it isn't just a free-for-all it's very ordered and people sit literally in rank order. There's the senators on the front row, then the equestrian class behind it, all the way up till you get to the women and the slaves at the top. And in many ways, it's what you know, people would call, you know, anthropologists would call this political theatre, that it is the Romans on display to themselves, In you know, as a polity, in their you know, in their proper dress, their posh dress, and their posh ranks. And yes, they are they are displaying that by witnessing together the the underclass on the floor of the arena who become the victims, whether that's animals from the conquered territories of the emperor, or gladiators and condemned criminals who are put to death in a sense, um, uh, to be witnessed by those who are within the citizen body not the excluded outsiders and in, this, in some ways what's going on is that the emperor is, par- is parading himself and his people to himself and to his people around the spectacle of the slaughter of the outsider now i don't think that makes it any more justifiable I'm not saying it's okay then uh, it's still bloody and nasty and there are still criticisms of it um, by romans you know usually rather posh academics who make a point of saying oh i don't think this is really quite for me i mean you know but there is you know it is an, it is a central institution and the roman emperors manipulate it and also sometimes get it terribly wrong. You know and one of the things, and this is a game where um the film Gladiator Had It Right, one of the problems is they want to get out and be a gladiator themselves. Because the 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 paradox of these victims who were slaughtered is that of course they are who everybody's looking at. So in a sense the emperor is not the
0: centre of attention. Well, you do have a couple of emperors you mentioned who who do that, play out that. They do. Is it Commodus who's yeah. lopping the heads off ostriches? Commodus, yes. He Commodus, has. sorry.
1: Yep, he, he goes in for wild beast hunts and he goes in for gladiatorial combat. And yet it's this... There's always a writ. you know. Emperors can't get away with it, you know. They they want to be the centre of attention. They want to take on a bit of that glamour, but it never works for them. And what Commodus does, and we have an absolute eyewitness account of this, is he he does kind of lop off the head of a ostrich. The ostrich has been very conveniently penned up, so he you know he can't really miss. <laughs> um, decapitates it. Ta- takes the head over to the senators who are on the front row, holds the ostrich head up, gets his sword in the other hand, grins and kind of gestures at them with his sword to the neck of the ostrich, as if to say, you next, guys, you know, (laughs) watch it. Now, what is the uh, reaction of the senators on the front row? They think, I'm going to giggle. If, it, if this goes on anymore, I am going to giggle. So the one who gives us the, uh, the account of this says, I didn't know what to do. So I was wearing a laurel wreath because, you know, Colosseum is very posh. You've got to, you, know, yeah. you 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 know, really are in your DJ. Uh, I plucked a leaf out of my wreath and I bit on it really hard so to stop myself laughing. And I told my next-door neighbours to do the same. And, you know, that is both a great story about the sort of humiliation in a way or the potential humiliation of the Senate who are sitting there having to look at this. But it's also, I think, and it's what I try to bring out, it's also a humiliation of the emperor. I mean, here is a guy who knows he's looking foolish and he's, you know, he's reduced to, to... Decapitating an ostrich, and go up with the senators and have them laugh
0: at him. Ah, very polyvalent. There's, um, as you as you say this, the, the the emperors didn't descend, or very seldom even descended by blood, and it you know all sorts of people from all over the empire could become emperor. Yeah. Yet, as you say, the institution itself. I mean, I was going to say, incidentally, Septimius Severus. There's been a lot of argument online about whether he was black. Quickly, was he? Uh, We don't know. (laughs) He came. He he has a um, a Libyan
1: mum, and a uh, probably Italian dad, and we haven't got the foggiest clue what he looked like. (laughs) We've got some very nice word on that. We've got white statues, and we have one painting of him in which his skin is a brownish colour, but that might be because the conventions of ancient painting give men brownish-coloured skin. So we don't
0: know. But We don't
1: know. It's, uh, it's an honourable position on Septimius to say, we don't know.
0: As you say, you know, the emperors came from all over. They, they were constantly you know, um, inheriting in unexpected and unstable ways. And yet the institution survives for 250, 300 yeah. years... Yeah. And then suddenly they're going through emperors like, you know, um, tic-tacs. Yes. What, why did that suddenly change?
1: It is extremely hard to know. I mean, uh, it, in some ways, you have to go back to Augustus and to see that he did. However he conceived it, he, he generated an extremely resilient system which kind of brought people on board and it lasted. So one thing he didn't solve, he didn't solve succession. Um, and he and his wife, Livia, had no children together. Um, They each had children, a child from their... more than one, in Livia's case, from the previous marriage. And uh, so from the very start of empire, succession was always up for grabs. Now, in some ways, that's quite good. You know, primogeniture can end you up... Habsburgs, (laughs) With, Habsburgs, <laughs> with with people who are you know not exactly uh, particularly suitable, just because they happen to be the eldest son, you know. So primogeniture isn't always great, but it does mean that the problem is solved. Um, Rome has the reverse problem; that it is possible to choose, at some level, as you know, not from absolutely anybody, but from amongst the elite. Uh, but you're all the time you're faced with. Who's, go, who's going to be the next guy? Uh, and they have different ways of dealing with this. And adoption is a common one. You know that, not, not adoption from anybody. You know, I'm a, you know, we can't, we shouldn't imagine that, even though Romans occasionally say anybody. You know, the the best candidate should be emperor. You know, the best candidate within a rather small group, but increase, in, increasingly a diverse group. I mean, Trajan and Hadrian have their origins in Spain. Um, that kind of sticks for a bit. And there are are very few periods, there's really two periods of civil war, uh, in 68-69 and in 192-3, where succession is contested so badly that it is actually a series of four or five emperors in a single year people look for reasons about why when you get to the third decade of the of the third century um you've you go from a period of actually despite all the difficulties broadly um calm succession of power behind the scenes i'm sure it was not calm at all but you know the public image was broadly calm um and then you get, you know, as you say, you know, dozens of emperors. You know, you know, in, um, you know, in thirty years, they reign for a you know, few months. Many of them don't ever come to Rome. They they stop being members of the elite, um, and uh, you know, they, men rise from the ranks and claim imperial power. And, and actually, I cheat in my book a bit, and I stop when that starts to happen. <laughs> Um, because I think it feels very different. For 44 BC to 235, it feels very similar. After that, it doesn't. Why is that the case? Well, you can look to big issues. You can say that um, there is you know, a crisis in the senatorial class. Um, you can talk about um, the di- divergences in, in the aspirations of people from outside Rome suddenly you know, suddenly all gradually seeing that they can come in here. I, I tend to think that it's that actually the sticking plaster of the succession just kind of finally broke at that point. You know, they'd managed it with band aid for more, you know, 300 years really, with only two times that exposed the difficulty, that actually the mirage didn't work any longer. And as soon as the mirage is broken, then, you know, it's all up. All bets are off. You know, and I, I think that the Romans saw there was a change. They didn't always see, see the change, I think, correctly. I mean, the, I, my account broadly finishes with the Emperor Alexander Severus and his successor was a guy called Maximinus the Thracian. And people gleefully say, first Roman emperor, who was illiterate." So they're seeing a change, but they're seeing a change, but they're also being very snobbish about that change. But you know, I I think it's probably it, they just couldn't hold it together any longer. Well,
0: they had, as your account eloquently says, a pretty good innings of it for that. Mary Beard, thank you very much indeed.